Hello and welcome to Share, Learn, Connect. Hi, I'm Georgia Lutby and I would like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the various lands on which we meet today. Down employs people across more than 300 sites, primarily in Australia and New Zealand, but also in the Asia-Pacific region, South America and Africa. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging and recognise and celebrate the diversity of First Peoples across all of the various land, their ongoing cultures and connections to land, sea and community. You are going to love our topic and guest today where we continue to break the bias and this time it is on all things military. In this month's episode, we will take a closer look at how assumptions about veterans and their skills might limit their chances to excel when they rejoin the civilian workforce and what we can do to collectively challenge these. And our guest is certainly no stranger to this month's topic. After an extensive career in the military and after being deployed twice overseas, Simon Hawkes Hawken left the army, joined Downer Defence and now works within facilities maintenance management. He reflects about his own preconceptions he had about military life prior to enlisting and how these perceptions changed after serving. I thought it was going to be really cool. I thought you get to walk around and shoot lots of things and blow things up. I just thought it was going to be a great big adventure. The reality was a little bit different. Hawks is very passionate about raising awareness about PTSD and he talks about his own struggles in transitioning from military to civilian life. He will talk about the reasons that led him to leave the army, the transferable skills he has brought with him and the legacy that he wishes to leave behind. People get put in terrible situations and as a human community we've got to help. I've learned that allowing refugees into the country and helping people, it is important because people genuinely are looking for something better. I hope that you enjoy this chat. Well, welcome, Simon. Thank you very much for joining us today and for your time. First of all, I would love to know a little bit about you. Who is Simon at work and who is Simon outside of work? Thanks very much for having me. Simon at work. So I'm the state upkeep manager for North Queensland in the defence contract under Downer. We look after facilities maintenance and asset maintenance across the region from Rocky up to the Cape. Outside of work, I'm married. I've got two children, two adult children. I've got a Harley. I enjoy riding a bike on the weekend. I use it as a bit of a de-stressor. Me and my wife spend a fair bit of time overseas traveling when we can. Obviously, with COVID, we can't. And basically, um, pottering around my yard and looking after my family, that's what I do. And I understand that you have a podcast. Do you want to tell me a little bit about that? I do. I have a podcast called HL Talks. A bit of a plug. It's on all the platforms. I've always had a fascination with people's stories. And I think it came from knowing a lot of people over the years and then realising that I didn't really know that much about them. I only knew about them for that period of time that I, I either worked with them or served with them, whatever it may be. I think I've got about 35 podcasts out now. It's more of a, a hobby, a bit of a passion. When you were a small child growing up in Newcastle, what did you want to be when you grew up? As a young child, every time you saw something, you wanted to be a police officer, a firefighter, a pilot. But as I got older, as a teenager, I wanted to be a professional surfer. You know, I never really had a focus my whole life on what I wanted to do. I just sort of fell into different things. In your childhood, what were the values that were instilled from you from those early days? But my dad is probably the most calm, peaceful sort of person I, I know. He sort of told me that it's more important about how you treat people and how you're perceived by others, not so much of how you project yourself. I understand you eventually ended up in the military. How did you get from A to B? 
when I had no work, I went to the police first. I thought I'll become a police officer in New South Wales. You had to be five foot ten then, and I'm not five foot ten. And I walked in the door of the recruiting office there, and they turned me around and said, Lee, you're too short. So I walked into the military recruiting office, and a couple of weeks later, I was signed up to the Defence Force. How old were you when you enlisted? I would have been, I think, 19. Wow. So you're 19 and you've walked into the office and been signed up to enlist the army. What do they do when you walk in the door as a bright-eyed, bushy-tailed 19-year-old? You go in for the, the signing up ceremony. So you take the oath, you sign the dotted line. And we went to Kapuka, which is the recruit training facility. And I always remember all the way down, they'd stop and they'd get us lunch and all that sort of thing. They were polite. As soon as we drove through the gate of Kapuka, the corporal that was on the bus just turned into a psychopath and started yelling at us all and screaming and... Day one was just yelling and screaming and not really knowing what's going on and shave your head, put you in a tracksuit, basically break you down straight away so that you all look the same. I remember going to bed that first night laying there thinking, what have I done? It, it got better from me once you got the hang of it. Why is that? So you're chatting to them on the bus. They're just normal people, I guess, in your eyes, having a chit-chat to a colleague or a leader, and then you get off the bus and, and it all changes. Is that to emulate what it would be like when you are deployed? No, it, knowing now, after spending 20-odd years in there, the idea is is when you get to Kapuka or any recruit training, whether it's Army, Navy or Air Force, what they do first is they make you all the same. And they're basically saying to you, everybody here is exactly the same. No one's better than anyone else. It's a process of breaking you out of that civilian mould into their mould, and then they can build you up again. So I understand that during your time in the Army, you did a couple of deployments. Would you like to talk a little bit about that and about what it felt like before you went and then what your experiences were when you were there? In 1994-95, I was deployed to Rwanda, which is in Central Africa. That was a peacekeeping mission. If people don't know, there was a genocide there that they believe between 800 to a million people were killed in three months. So we were taken in afterwards Australia supplied a, a medical force, doctors, nurses, surgery, capability, all that type of thing, and infantry, which was me, as security. And we travelled around that country providing aid to people. And we also provided those medical services to other nations that were there as part of the UN. My second deployment was in 1999-2000, which was to East Timor, right at the start there. And in effect, that was a completely different scenario. So one was peacekeeping. The second one was under the banner of peacemaking. To answer your question, I wanted to go because it's like anything in life that people do, in particular sports sort of scenarios where you train for the big game. You know, the military, you're training, you're training, training. The big game is deployment. So yes, I wanted to be there. I wanted to go. Saw some horrific things in some of those places. People often say that, you know, why would you do that? People want to achieve something. And being deployed, in particularly in the military, is that achievement the people in a lot of cases just has different consequences sometimes. In the early 90s, how did you contact your family when you were deployed? Telstra, oddly enough, actually provided us with communications over there, so a phone system. We could buy phone cards and you could ring home. So I was engaged then and I could ring my fiancé. I think you could talk for like 20 minutes or something, a week or whatever it was. The rest of it was just by mail. It sent letters and received parcels, that type of thing. Actually writing on a bit of paper, putting an envelope and sending it. That was, that was what you did. Very novel these days. What was a day in the life of a deployment like? What would you do? I'll use Rwanda as for an example. So our role was convoy protection or medical support force protection. So your days were basically protecting the medical support force 
a lot of sitting around, waiting, counting ants. But then all of a sudden, it's one of those scenarios where something can go wrong really quickly. There was a couple of times where the bad guys would start to attack IDPs, so people in the camps, and we just have to react to that. Our rules of engagement didn't allow us to open fire, but it was trying to de-escalate the situations and protect the local people. Unless those people were inside our perimeter, we technically couldn't protect them. But we did have some instances where you'd go and get in between it because we knew they wouldn't physically do anything to us. How would you unpack in an evening what's just happened? You generally debrief. You'll sit your team down and you talk through the day. It's for two reasons. One reason is you're collecting for a patrol report. So you're asking everyone, did you see anything out of the unusual today? And blokes might say, I saw this or I saw, I saw this type of weapon and you can document it. So it's, it's gathering extra information. If something occurred, you talk it through. What did we do and how did we manage that? Anyone got ideas of how we could do better if that happens again? And I think that gives everybody the opportunity then to get their understanding of what occurred out. At that time, there wasn't really good systems in place for mental issues. One of my soldiers, so we'd go to these massacre sites and he says, I can't go there anymore. I thought the best way for me to do all that is I'll make myself the bad guy. And what I'd do is when we pull up there, I'd say to him, I need you to protect the vehicle. And I told him, I said, just argue with me a little bit. So he'd go, I always have to do this. I was like, I don't care, mate, do as you're told. But it, it made me the bad guy and sort of save face for him not having to tell the other guys he didn't want to do it. I've spoken to psychiatrists and psychologists since and, and mentioned that. And they said, you know, it's probably the best mechanism you had at the time to deal with it. It helped him. I also remember before we left, we had a psych debrief. And halfway through that psych debrief, there was an incident at the front, so we had to go out and deal with that incident. And by the time we'd finished dealing with that, we came back and our time was up, so that was it. The systems back then were um, lacking, but defences acknowledge that now and they have far better systems in place. I'd love your thoughts in terms of the initiation when you joined the army and how they really started from the basics and stuff that a lot of people would probably go, I already know how to make my bed. I already know how to stand up tall. Do you transfer that now as a leader at Downer where you start at the bare basics and initiate people, even if maybe they have an assumed knowledge of things? You're training people for a different role. If we cut it to the chase, you're training people to go to war and fight. You've got to break people down so that they'll follow orders. So to answer your question, no, I don't use those types of methods with people in the business because it just wouldn't work. Yeah, you can't, you will do this, you will do that. You've got to learn to temper that and listen to others and not be more respectful. You're still respectful in the fence, but just more understanding of different dynamics. There's some little bits I've taken, but generally speaking, I had to reinvent the wheel from a system where it's an authoritarian system to a system where you've got to be able to understand and, and respect others. I suppose the biggest difference between defence and the corporate world is in defence, you're paid to train and become the best at what you do. Whereas in corporations, you try to get training for people, you get little snippets here and there. And at first I was frustrated with it because in a previous life, it was endless. You just do it. But I do understand that, you know, these companies have to make money. They have shareholders. They have people they have to pay. It's not a system that's designed just to make you the best person that you can be in your role. Do you think there's a correlation, though, if you build people up to be the best they can be, that they're ultimately going to be able to increase your share price and generate the profits that you're seeking? Oh, I do. I think training is critical. And in a perfect world, I'm sure the downers of the world would love it if they could take everything offline for six months and put all their people through leadership courses and high-level training, whatever it may be. But the reality is the business still has to function. 
other organisations start to poach as well and you start to lose people. So in the corporate world, it's a fine line. I'd be interested to know what it was like when you would come home from a deployment. So you spent months away and you're living in this, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but sort of an artificial world almost where it's, you know, you're in this bubble and then you arrive home. What's that like? I'd gone from living in Townsville to a normal life, engaged, buying a house, going to work each day to deployed to the middle of a war-torn country with just devastation and it was bad. When it finished, the, the next rotation came in. We did a handover with them. I think we had a week sort of handover where we'd show them what we were doing and handed everything over and then hand all our leadership back in and get on a plane to fly home. That was confronting because I'd gone from all of that in that country, so living on you know the edge all the time, hyper intense, to sitting on a plane, sleeping all the way home. We flew all the way home and got off in Townsville, handed my rifle in and went home. And then I'm sitting in the land room next to my fiance, and it was very confronting because everything had changed so quickly. I understand why they did that. They wanted to get us home to your families as quick as they could. But I think you're going from one extreme to normality. And it was tough. It is a tough gig. And it took weeks and weeks to settle down. And, and you, you're on leave too, though. So you're straight on leave. So you just sit at home. My wife would get over a fiance there, would go to work, and I'd be at home on my own. And I just, just go through all different sorts of emotions and hear things. And if you hear noises, you, you get all panicky and that type of thing. Then you realize where you are. But it's, yeah, it's, it's tough. It's tough to come back from that environment. Did you find that? you had changed on the deployment, but life hadn't changed and you'd come back a different person, but life was just going on as normal around you? I don't think I changed at all. If you speak to my wife, she says, I've had three husbands, the one I met, the one after Rwanda and the one after Timor. But to answer your question, yes, it's confronting to come back and just see people going about their normal lives. You're looking at them as if it's not right, but you're trying to think yourself, this is just a normal Australian person. It could be you at the shop still in your shopping. It's those memories in your head that keep, keep clicking over and you're sort of looking at it thinking, well, why is everyone just going about their business? Do they know what's going on there? For me now, looking at Afghanistan, because I had nothing to do with Afghanistan at all, but I understand that better now because I know people that come back and I'm just going about my life as normal. Unless you know who they are or that they were there, then you, you don't think any of it. And I understand that you were diagnosed with PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Is that correct? Yes. What was the situation that came to your diagnosis of that or to have a term to put to what you were feeling? I was uh, drinking a lot. I didn't think there was anything wrong at all. My wife actually said to me, you know, you're drinking too much. And she's the one who convinced me to go and see a psychiatrist. And I got in to see this guy and he insisted that she come. When I got there, at first I was a bit confronted there because he says, you just sit down there. He said, I'm, I'm going to talk to your wife for this person. He just talked to her. And I'm sitting there thinking, I'm the one who's supposed to have a problem. But what he did was, is he asked her, what's he doing? What's different? He'll come home and he'll sit in the chair. He won't talk to anybody. People will come over. He just ignores them, watch TV. Or if people come over, he'll go at the back to his shed, whatever it may be. That's depression. The drinking was to... I couldn't sleep. I wasn't, I wasn't able to sleep. I'd always have that. They call me intrusive thoughts and visions. I'd be woken up by things. I'd see things. And you, know, you sort of wake up quickly and you're back in certain scenarios. And I just thought it was normal. But turns out it's not. So I've been seeing this guy for years. He's helped a lot. And it's understanding what the signs and symptoms are. 99% of people will deny it. They call it self-medicating. So a lot of people turn to alcohol, drugs, whatever it may be. It's worse for the situation. So for me, 
It was understanding what I was doing, accepting what I was doing, and then working on how I could improve myself. And for me, it's on me that when I get myself in that point where I don't want to talk to people and that sort of thing, is to acknowledge it and then make myself do it. And I think the podcast helps with that as well. Have you always been able to talk this openly about it? There can sometimes be stigma with people who have experiences with mental health. No. 2003, I was diagnosed and I didn't tell a soul for probably 10 years. Didn't tell my parents, didn't tell anyone. It was only me and my wife knew. It's a stigma. People think if you tell somebody that you have a mental problem, that they'll think you're crazy. I don't now, but I used to think that people would look at me differently and think he's crazy, you can't trust him. He's a psychopath. A lot of people don't understand, in particular, depression and these types of things, which are fairly prevalent. For anyone out there who's feeling depressed or whatever it is, you've got to get out and talk about it. You have to open up. You've got to own it. If you hold it inside and let it eat away, you'll just get into darker and darker places. Depression's like being in a well, looking up, and all you can see is a little light. If you start to climb out of that well, that light will get brighter. If you stay at the bottom of the well, it'll just get smaller and tighter. It's not just something that applies to military. It's anybody can get affected by depression and PTSD. COVID's a good example. Going from a normal life, getting out, doing whatever you want, going to pubs and clubs and shops or whatever you want to do to lockdown, can't leave your house. For a lot of people, it would be tough. Society is changing and there's a lot of good organisations out there that are encouraging people to talk. The more that we push that and people do start to talk, that stigma goes away and people become more understanding. Getting it off your chest and telling people helps. How do you look out for those around you in the workforce as a leader who may have some signs of these types of things? I look for change. For instance, if someone's a happy-go-lucky person and they always come in every morning and have a chat before they start work and you start to see that that chat's not happening anymore or they're going to sit in their office, it's probably a sign to go and sit down and just ask them how you go and how you're travelling. And you'll soon pick up on if they're dismissive, generally. Depression's more of that shutting off from everyone else, pulling away, not talking as much. You just think back and think, well, what does that person normally do? And if it's a complete flip, there's a good chance that there's something going on there. What helped you or what was your trigger to make the decision to discharge from the army? And what were your experiences after that? I'd done 20 odd years and East Timor, my deployment there, my son was born three weeks before I left. That was a bit hard. I had to go away for, I think it was five or six months. A couple of years later, my daughter came along and I thought I was still young enough to get out and start another career. I was helped by the major I was working for at the time. It was the first female major I'd ever had in the system and she was fantastic. I applied for a job with Spotless at the time. Defence at that point gave you two months where you could say to an employer, put me on for two months, Defence will pay me. If I can do the job, then you give me the job. And they said, yeah, no, I will do that. So I decided I don't want to be deploying all the time, going overseas, being away from my family. I need to focus on raising my family now and dealing with myself, obviously, as well. So I took that step and got out. Was there any culture shock that you experienced when you first started in the spotless, now down a business and moved into that civilian workforce life out of the military? I suppose the biggest shock for me was learning that the system we're working now is not as direct. The mission statement or whatever you want to call it, the intent is not as clear. And it's not because businesses don't try to do that. It's because it's a very fluid sort of industry and things change and things have to happen. I don't have a structured program anymore. I used to know what I was doing for the next 12 months. 
walking into something where, you know, you can be working on something in the morning, then something else pops up, you've got to completely flip and do that. Our episode is all about bias and breaking the bias. What does bias mean to you? Bias means to me is probably preconceptions, whether it be an individual or a group of people, whether it's based on race, religion, colour, service, whatever it may be, they might feel threatened by that other person. It can be a bias where they think that maybe that person's not qualified enough to do this because they probably don't understand what that person's done. What are some misconceptions or any myths or subconscious biases that people have about those that have been in the army or the military? I'll use myself as an example. I was an infantry soldier for 20 years. So people think that all you do is shoot people and blow things up. You become a section commander, then you're in a leadership role. So it's like a supervisor's role. So you're managing their training. You're managing their day-to-day admin activities, so the HR. And the further you go up the chain, the bigger that gets and the more responsibility you get. Your resume shouldn't just say that I did 20 years in the infantry. That's the important thing is to be able to get people to understand what skills you do bring to the table. They make decisions really quickly in high-pressure situations. You know, In reality, they're probably going to be a really good leader or manager because they can make decisions on the fly. But people often look at it and just think, well, they nothing about what we do. Sounds like in breaking that down when you applied for that role and speaking the language of those in the spotless business at the time, you did break down the bias. It sounds like they may have had some inherently, potentially, not even realising, and you you articulating exactly what those transferable skills were did break it. And what legacy do you hope to leave at Downer? I hope that what I can do in my role helps Downer along. Hopefully they're successful in future contracts because of what we've been able to do. I've got some great friends now from Downer that I spend time with outside of work. I just hope that Downer stays a successful company. They do give opportunity to everybody. And if I can play a little part in that to help build that company, especially in this new defence space that they've jumped into, we can help build Downer in that space and achieve goals, then there'll be jobs for people in the future, which is my children. Thank you so much. It was such a pleasure to chat to you today, Simon. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your day and I've learnt so much. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Always, I appreciate the chat and I enjoyed having a chat with you as well. You might have to come on my podcast one day. Today's episode was about breaking the bias and wow, there were a lot of things that I had in my mind about what it would be like in the armed forces or returning to civilian life and hearing Simon's story has really opened my eyes. I also found it really interesting as he spoke about his experiences post-deployment and his experiences with PTSD and his openness about it, his openness to share about what his mental health challenges were. One of the things that really stood out to me was the bias that was experienced by Simon when he originally applied for his job at Downer, but with the benefit of a program at the time where he was able to have his salary paid for by the defence for two months, he was able to prove himself in the role and it turned out that those skills were entirely transferable. And as I listened, I thought, what can I do? What can I learn from that? And I think, first of all, it's so important that we don't have pre-existing biases. And if we do, that we acknowledge what they are and see transferable skills for what they're worth. 
And I also loved the way that he talked about checking in with people. I think that is just so important that if there's someone around you who's not being themselves or someone who might have gone through a life-altering experience, send them a text, give them a call, check in with them and just see how they're going. Notice those warning signs and really reach out because what a tiny little moment out of your day can mean to someone else is phenomenal. Thank you so much for listening. 